a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome to the show. Whether you are a longtime listener, returning for encouragement, or a first-time listener, just dialing in to check out and see, okay, what's this all about? I welcome you to the show where we revel in wrong think. And I urge you to check out the show notes, which I publish each for each episode at the com. Reason I encourage you to check that out is because I have links to the various articles, the various authors and guests that I have on the program. And it's a chance for you to do a little bit of exploration on your own. I know it's, it's not like I'm giving you a homework assignment, but <clears throat> rather encouraging you, you know, do the research for yourself as far as suss out these articles, look and see. I'm not expecting you to believe anything that I share with you. I only offer them in the interest of this may offer an expanded viewpoint from where you currently stand. What you do with the information, though, that's entirely up to you. By the way, I have a couple of wonderful sponsors I'd like to mention as well. Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, and Rio del Sion. I'm probably saying it wrong. Rio del Sion Home Lots, just outside of Zion National Park. Anyway, you can find those on the show notes as well, right at the bottom of the page under Sponsors. So, welcome. We have a lot of fun stuff to talk about in this hour. I want to start with something that uh, has been on my mind for quite a while and I think is finally finally breaking through into a lot of other people's consciousness. And it's not because, you know, they were slow to figure it out and I got there first. It's just after a while you start to pick up on some things, but not everybody sees it. And this is particularly true as to the nature of the two-party system. I've been a skeptic for quite some time, and sometimes that frustrates my friends. Because they're like, well, you're going to leave a power vacuum, you're just going to leave this wide open. Genghis Khan and his hordes are going to come riding in, and they're going to assume power because you don't believe in the system. Or at least I think that's kind of how it goes. Nonetheless, there are some real problems with the collapse of the two-party system. And Thomas Luongo, in an article published on Daily Liberty News... I think has a pretty good explanation of how the two-party system really has become a one-party system. And I think it's becoming more official by the day. Uh, with, with all of the th- consolidation of power that's going on right now, all of the moves that are being undertaken, particularly at the federal level, yeah, it's, it's becoming a one-party system. So if you were worried about you know future election fraud, I don't think you're going to have to worry. I think the system is fixed. <laughs> in that, uh, you know, you will always be allowed to vote within the party. But here's what Thomas Luongo says. <clears throat> he says, are you ever confused when Republicans vote for more welfare spending? Or do you wonder why America's wars always seem to start under Democrats? During the aftermath of the pre- presidential election, he says, did it anger you? that long-serving Republicans refused to take President Trump's complaints about the election seriously? How about did their final betrayal of him hit you like a punch to the solar plexus, knocking all the wind out of your chest? Well, Thomas Luongo says, I can honestly say 
none of this surprised me at all. I know, good for me, right? Well, no, actually, he says it makes me sad to have been right for all these years. He says, I've seen the pantomime in D.C. as both sides hand off control to each other every few years, but always govern with the same overriding purpose, to build an unassailable wall of power between the political elite and the people they rule. And this is true because there is no divide between the two parties in D.C. He says the GOP and the DNC are, in the great words of a libertarian commentator, Tom Woods, two wings of the same bird of prey. And one of the very best things that has come about from this election cycle, where clear and pervasive voter fraud occurred, is that so many people have come to that same conclusion. And he says, if you're one of them, believe me, it gets easier to accept it every day. He says, I hear it from well-meaning, thoughtful conservatives all the time. They're good, decent people. They are regularly so disappointed by the Republicans who campaign on the correct rhetoric, but then get into office and give in to the pork spending, the assaults on our culture, and never stand up to the Democrats' insane ravings about race and inequality. It's because they are part of the club, folks. And he says the club exists for their benefit, not yours. Team Red and Team Blue are constructs. They're false opposites. Yes, there are members who are more aligned with one philosophy than the other. AOC, he says, is definitely a crazy commie. And Rand Paul, a mostly principled libertarian, but they aren't the party leadership. Well, in AOC's case, not yet. He says the rank-and-file Republicans are either too weak, too compromised, or just plain in it for themselves to do anything but put up token resistance on the road to serfdom described by F.A. Hayek more than 70 years ago. The leadership, however, of both parties are perfectly aligned and only pretend to fight in public. This is why Mitch McConnell makes the mistakes he makes. It's why, in fact, Mitch McConnell is still in a leadership position in the GOP to ensure that no major policy program is curtailed. And we've known this implicitly for years. Tom Luongo says the GOP was the false and controlled opposition to the Democrats who set the agenda that the people who stand behind them wanted them to set. In the post-COVID world, we can see their plan very clearly, and it is a frightening one. The slow realization that we really don't control Washington lay dormant until awakened by Ron Paul back in 2008. It led to the Trump revolution in 2016. A lot of people realized there was something terribly wrong in Washington, but like Trump, didn't realize just how bad things were. There was a certain naivete in both the Bernie bros on the left and the MAGA dudes on the right. They both yearned for an America that gave them a fair shake, that didn't pile burdens and guilt on them for being white or middle class or worse, heterosexual. Tom Luongo says, I've talked to plenty of liberals who aren't godless, gun-hating tyrants. They're just as appalled by what's happening as the conservatives are. Both groups believed that the system of America still, at its core, worked in their favor. That if they just picked a champion and made their voices loud enough, the polls in D.C. would have to listen to them. The Bernie bros were disenfranchised in 2016 and likely in 2020 as well. And the MAGA dudes just learned the same lesson on a much grander scale. And Tom Luongo says, and that was my fervent hope for the 2020 election. Because the club in D.C. told us how they were going to steal the election. They told us Trump would be fumigated from the White House in the words of Nancy Pelosi. 
The only way to beat that <clears throat> would be a landslide of such immense proportions that it would force the cheating out into the open, exposing the lies. And Tom Luongo says that's exactly what happened. Anyone with any shred of intellectual integrity or a basic understanding of math knows this. And yet they stole the election anyway. And he says, and this to me has created the perfect moment of transition for America because this has now collapsed the false contrast of red versus blue in the minds of millions. A country that has never been more divided is also now strangely united in their contempt for not only our government, but also the media, which openly supports its most brazen lies. There are still plenty of people on the left side of the political spectrum who think that their winning this election will bring them everything they ever wanted. They think, if the screeching on Twitter is to be believed, that a complete repudiation of Trumpism will usher in a new golden age of enlightened embracing of trannies and the final dispersal of the vestiges of community and family in America. And he says in the short run, they may be completely right. By the same token, however, the collapse of red versus blue means the wholesale rejection of the GOP by tens of millions of Trump supporters. That destroys the myth that the only that they are the only viable opposition to the insanity of the Democrats. 75 million Trump voters were just cured of their Stockholm syndrome to their GOP captors. And he says this was a necessary illusion which needed to be dispelled and could only be torn down with the GOP's betrayal of Trump when the country's future was on the line. It paves the way for a new American political landscape without the false hope of a GOP savior at the next election. In fact, he says the GOP only ever acted as the relief valve for the anguish and frustration of two generations of nominally conservative Americans to pour their money into and in doing so feed the club even more power. Trump brought the party Hispanics and black people in record numbers. He appealed to their better angels and desire for an honest job and stable community to raise their families in. The Democrats will hold a sham impeachment trial with the Republicans' consent to reinforce their dominance over the people, the deplorables, MAGA dudes, and Bernie bros who made the mistake of thinking they had hope of getting off the reservation. For better or for worse, Tom Luongo says Trump blew apart the lie that Republicans stood for freedom and the Democrats for socialism. Turns out they both just believe in power. Theirs. Now that Red v. Blue has collapsed, it's revealed the far more sinister and dangerous reality that America is now the land of us versus them. And that's a fight politics as usual cannot settle. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm, I'm curious, if you have any thoughts on the Tom Luongo piece that I shared in the first segment, I want to ask a small favor. If you go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you will notice there is a place there where you can leave a comment. And I would ask you, give me some feedback on this. I know I'm not the only person who has, has felt somewhat vindicated to, to, to see people waking up to the idea that, hey... Neither one of these parties is really working for us. They're they're serving the system, the establishment itself. And you don't have to go far down any, you don't even have to go down any conspiracy, you know, rabbit hole 
to recognize that no, the the system is far more interested in protecting itself than it is in in uh, you know carrying out the 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 purpose for which it it was created in the first place. Government was called into existence for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing our natural rights. But a lot has changed in the sense of how it has grown, how it has asserted itself, how how a little sophistry here and a little sophistry there from the federal bench and from the Supreme Court has morphed the role of government. And as painful as it is, and I and trust me when I tell you, there is I I, I understand how painful it is to to fight through the cognitive dissonance of trying to hold those two thoughts simultaneously of, hey, we're getting screwed by our government and hey, our government is here to to protect our government is us. It, it works for us. I think a lot of people have been disabused of the notion that uh, that it works for us. And that still leaves, you know, the problem, okay, so what do we do from here? And that's, that's something that we will be exploring in greater detail as we move forward. But uh, what's the old saying from the 12-step programs? You know, the first step is recognizing that you have a problem. I think we're actually, actually at that stage for a lot of people. I found a great article, too, by the way, that uh, I thought used an excellent teaching opportunity from all of the GameStop saga that we saw unraveling about this time last week. And it's uh, from Jeff Deist from the uh, Mises, uh, Von Mises organization. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Von Mises Institute. Sorry, it's Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. He had an article published earlier today on LewRockwell.com, how the GameStop saga unravels stakeholder theory. And this is kind of a cool explanation of, of what was playing out. I know a lot of people got a wake-up call on that one, too. Well, if at least the financial system works, you know, for everybody. Uh, nope. <laughs> it works for the elite, and it doesn't work so well for you. Jeff Deist says the GameStop saga shows some equity movements are more equal than others. And he, he first turns to stakeholder theory. That's the corporate version of social justice, which attempts to install this hopelessly amorphous concept of equity in the business world. Now, equity, unlike equality, demands different treatment of individuals and dis- different distribution of resources based on need, identity, and historical injustices. But, the, but now equity, he says, has evolved beyond a political buzzword, and it finds growing support in calls for stakeholder capitalism. The animating impulse in big corporate boardrooms today requires cultivating an image of social responsibility. Wow, do we see that everywhere. He says, under this theory, business firms should entertain all kinds of non-economic goals and outcomes. No longer may owners simply concern themselves with profit or loss, but instead must consider the broader societal implications of everything their business does. Whether corporate leaders concern themselves with social justice out of genuine concern or merely to avoid backlash is an open question. But he says the events of 2020 clearly changed the conversations in boardrooms. Under the old conception, businesses have four primary elements, namely owners, managers, employees or vendors, and customers. All four have skin in the game, which is to say their own money or income is involved. The notion of stakeholders inverts this paradigm and grants a degree of power over ostensibly private businesses to those who take no risks and provide no benefit. 
By undermining the suddenly old-fashioned idea of profit and loss as the guiding principle for business, stakeholder theory calls into question the very existence of millions of businesses, big and small. In fact, their grubby and narrow focus is simply to make money. He says to suggest the general public or society at large ought to be a de facto partner in any business based on the interconnectedness or interconnected nature of any economy is to suggest an unlimited and wholesale attack on the, on the concept of private ownership. It's patently anti-property and implies collectivism by its very conceptual foundation. And he says it insists that everyone in society ought to have an interest in and some say over what ostensibly private firms do. And not only with respect to their profits, but even their business practices and mission. Stakeholder theory even creates a starring role for the earth itself as the ultimate non-renewable resource, which is dubiously always in peril from business. Jeff Deist says societal ownership of business firms traditionally takes three prominent forms, specifically socialism, communism, and fascism. But in 2021, these terms fail to shock or alarm us as they once did. The constant, the constant use, attenuated language makes us almost uh, immune to powerful words that ought to be used judiciously. Socialism is increasingly popular, while fascism is the pejorative increasingly aimed at market capitalism. The new speak of equity and stakeholders is yet another third-way bridge blurring the distinction between private and state, between the economic means and the political means. And he says, and to be fair... Equity and stakeholder movements, per se, do not represent outright socialism or fascism in either the Miesian or the Rothbardian sense. We still have stock markets, we still have private owners, and we still have profits and losses. He says the equity revolution takes place within the form as an evolution rather than a deviation. So enter GameStop and its Reddit Wall Street Bets bros, determined to prop up the fading retailer stock price in the face of intense short-selling pressure by powerful and rich hedge funds. This uprising, whether motivated by greed, by greed rather, gamer culture, or sheer spite against perceived Wall Street fat cats, is as much imbued with notions of fairness and societal benefit as any protest movement. Yet suddenly the champions of stakeholder theory, like the predictably despicable Washington Post, find themselves singing a new tune about vulture capitalists, deciding that hedge fund short sellers are the good guys in the story. After all, stakeholder theory means investment funds and major corporations have the right or even the duty to make uneconomic decisions. Broader societal interests, not just bottom-line profits and shareholder value, must be considered. So funds and companies frequently invest in supposedly green but inevitably less efficient technology, make donations to left-wing social causes like Black Lives Matter, and give money to a variety of charities. Now, these actions may in fact provide long-term economic benefits from a positive public image, but they do not directly increase share prices or dividends. Redditors have the same right, correctly or not. They see social benefit in causing financial losses for hedge funds with short positions looking to profit off GameStop stock decline and also anticipating eventual bankruptcy due to downloadable games obviating any need for retail outlets. He says, if Coke Industries can be characterized as a nasty fossil fuels polluter whose profits fund captured anti-democratic right-wing think tanks, 
Why can't Redditors similarly, similarly portray hedge funds as evil tools for the 1% to get even richer on the back of a struggling retail chain? The notion of rich Wall Street investment bankers using their inordinate, inordinate financial power to rip the marrow out of a dying industry's carcass used to excite the left. But he says now that same narrative somehow becomes an alt-right populist slander, one used by Reddit bros in their evil plot to manipulate the GameStop price. you got to take a break here because we're up against the break, but we'll come back and we'll finish up this article from Jeff Deist about how the GameStop saga unravels stakeholder theory. I don't get to use a lot of these economic terms in my day-to-day life, and I'm actually kind of glad for that. But I find this fascinating. And I feel like I'm learning something. I hope you are too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you this excellent article from Jeff Deist, published on LewRockwell.com earlier today, about how the GameStop saga unravels stakeholder theory. And he has uh, he's doing a very good job of uh, describing the dynamic at work here. And, uh, and I'm learning a little bit in the process. I hope you are as well. He says, in truth, there are no victims in this tale. In fact, he says, perversely, the celebrated former Fed chair and current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was paid more than $800,000 by Citadel LLC, another player in the GameStop story. So should her equity be redistributed? Just yesterday, GameStop stock dropped nearly 60% and lost $400 per share from its recent all-time high. And while it all seems like a manipulated or even immoral series of events, He says we should remember that nobody put a gun to anyone's head. The Wall Street Bets group collectively chose to put their own money at play, knowing they were pumping the share price and could not get all out at once or even at a profit. Melvin Capital and other hedge funds heavily invested in shorting GameStop chose to take a significant risk, and their due diligence certainly should have included understanding and monitoring Reddit investment boards. As economist Peter Earle recently said, if you get in the ring, you might get punched. Now, from here, Jeff Deist says, look, the purpose of capital markets is price discovery. They help investors and businesses allocate capital to its best and highest uses, however imperfectly and haphazardly. Short traders, long traders, so-called inside traders, futures traders, derivative contracts, speculators, gamblers, colluders, even naked short sellers all serve this imperfect process. And he says all of these individuals and mechanisms constantly recalibrate and react to changing conditions, bringing a public company's performance and share price into greater clarity. And any firm not wishing to subject itself to the vagaries of fickle equity markets or public campaigns can simply remain private and fund itself through operations or private placements. He says the process is imperfect because humans are imperfect. It can manifest in fits and starts and demonstrate deep irrationality or even mania. But the alternative is nothing less than creeping socialism by another name, whether stakeholder capitalism or otherwise. He says, when your avatistic and deficient theory backfires on you, look for a mirror 
rather than a congressional bailout. Everything is not everyone's. Yeah, I probably should have a dictionary close at hand. Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there that uh, is just not a part of my day-to-day vocabulary. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. Haven't talked about masks a lot lately, and that's kind of been on purpose because I know it's such a it's such a source of frustration and division for a lot of people. But uh, hey, here we are, and now there are some official federal mask mandates that have come out. Uh, Daisy Luther, writing as the organic prepper, points out that the CDC and TSA have now formed a federal mask police. And enforcement is up to officer discretion. I'm sorry, but it chills me just a little bit to, to see the TSA in charge of enforcing anything. I mean, I, I, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but yeah, the TSA, if, if you want to see the, the petty tyranny of what a recently empowered person can do, that's a really good place to see it. All you have to do is roll your eyes at the wrong time or heave a sigh or just uh, not not understand what is being demanded of you the first time someone says something. And, and you will see this incredible flex of, do you know who I am? Do you know what authority I have? And it's been it's been this way for for almost 20 years. We've we've had the TSA now for almost 20 years and it's just not getting better. So, of course, let's, let's have them help out with mask enforcement. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Here's how Daisy Luther puts it. She says, The Centers for Disease Control and the Transportation Security Administration have teamed up in an effort to enforce mask wearing in public conveyances and transportation hubs for the, quote, preservation of human life. Now, she says, This is not a pro or con mask article because that could be considered disinformation. But she says the heightened emotions around the mask debate have become tribal in nature. So she says nothing written by me or anyone else is likely to change the minds that have already been made up. This article is just to outline the new rules to be enforced by the new mask police. And she says some readers may be concerned about the risk of arbitrary enforcement or excessive potential punishment to which those using public transportation will be subject. And she starts with a quote from Elizabeth Nolan Brown, writing for Reason.com, quote, The order will be enforced by Transportation Security Administration agents and other federal authorities, as well as state and local officials. To the extent permitted by law, federal agencies are required to implement additional measures enforcing the provisions of this order, the CDC says. CDC reserves the right to enforce through criminal penalties, the agency adds, though it claims not to intend to rely primarily on these criminal penalties. The feds may also implement additional civil measures enforcing the provisions of the order, which is not a rule within the meaning of the Administrative Procedure Act, the CDC notes, but rather what rather but rather is an emergency action. So basically, we don't get to know ahead of time what the criminal penalty might be, as it's not outlined in either the CDC order or the executive order. Now, she asks a question that's, that's kind of chilling, but also very uh, enlightening, and that is, back in early 2020, would you have ever imagined that your decision of whether or not to wear a face covering could one day be a federal crime? Yeah, here we are. Now, here's what the CDC has to say about the order. They issued a very lengthy PDF order on January 29th saying the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued an order 
on January 29th requiring that the wearing the requiring the wearing of masks by travelers to prevent spread of the virus that causes COVID-19. Conveyance operators must also require all persons on board to wear masks when boarding, disembarking, and for the duration of travel. Operators of transportation hubs must require all persons to wear a mask when entering or on the premises of a transportation hub. This order must be followed by all passengers on public conveyances like airplanes, ships, ferries, trains, subways, buses, taxis, ride shares, traveling into, within, or out of the United States, as well as conveyance operators, crew, drivers, conductors, and other workers involved in the operation of conveyances, and operators of transportation hubs, airports, bus or ferry terminals, train or subway stations, seaports, ports of entry, or any other area that provides transportation in the United States. Now, Daisy Luther says, please keep in mind, that's the same CDC that told us last March we should definitely not wear masks. And again, here's another article. The CDC said last month it doesn't recommend people use face masks, making the announcement on the same day that the first case of person-to-person transmission of coronavirus was reported in the U.S. The CDC recommendation on masks stands, a spokesman told Market Watch Wednesday, even with the first reported case of COVID-19 infection in an individual in California who had not been to China or exposed to a person diagnosed with the virus. The virus is not spreading in the general community, Dr. Nancy Massonier, director of the Center for National the Center for the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases said in a January 30th briefing, "We don't routinely recommend the use of face masks by the public to prevent respiratory illness, and we certainly are not recommending that at this time for this new virus. That's what they said then. Contrast that with what they're doing now. Daisy Luther says it would be one thing to have federal officers roaming around public transit targeting those who aren't wearing a mask at all, but this order is far more detailed, leaving a number of details up to the discretion of the agent. And that's where it gets kind of troubling. Because what kind of mask is required? These are the attributes of masks needed to fulfill the requirements of the order. According to the CDC, a properly worn mask completely covers the nose and mouth. Cloth masks should be made with two or more layers of a breathable fabric that is tightly woven. In other words, fabrics that don't let light pass through when held up to a light source. Masks should be secured to the head with ties, ear loops, or elastic bands that go behind the head. If gaiters are worn, they should have two layers of fabric or be folded to make two layers. Masks should fit snugly but comfortably against the side of the face, and masks should be a solid piece of material without slits, exhalation valves, or punctures. And the following attributes are additionally acceptable as long as masks meet the requirements above. The masks can either be manufactured or homemade. They can be reusable or disposable. They can have inner filter pockets. And clear masks with, or cloth masks with a clear plastic panel may be used to facilitate communication with people who are hearing impaired or others who need to see a speaker's mouth to understand speech. Also, medical masks and N95 respirators fulfill the requirements of the order. But the new rules don't stop there. And when we come back to the other side of our break, we will talk a little bit more about those rules. Look, I don't know about you. I'm having serious doubts that I will ever step onto another airplane in the near future. Well, for the foreseeable future, that is. I don't know. Maybe maybe sanity will return at some point. But I don't know. I think I'm done with public transportation. I got a thumb and I got shoes. I'm covered.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Just finishing up an article here from Daisy Luther, the organic prepper, on how the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Transportation Security Administration have formed a federal mask police, at least as far as uh, travel goes. Yeah, you got to have them. And going through some of these rules, which Daisy Luther says they they are kind of troubling, the deeper you dig, what kind of masks don't qualify as masks? Well, per the CDC, the following are not sufficiently compliant. The following do not fulfill the requirements of the CDC order. Masks worn in a way that does not cover both the mouth and nose. Face shields or goggles, although face shields or goggles may be worn to supplement a mask that meets the above required attributes. Scarves, ski masks, balaclavas or bandanas, shirt or sweater collars, in other words, turtleneck collars pulled up over the mouth and nose, masks made from loosely woven fabric that are knitted, in other words, fabrics that let light pass through, masks made from materials that are hard to breathe through, like vinyl, plastic or leather, masks containing slits, exhalation valves, or punctures, and masks that do not fit properly. In other words, large gaps, too loose or too tight. So when can the mask be off? Well, there's good news. You don't have to wear one all the time on public transit. So here are exceptions from page four of the order. Uh, In addition, the requirement to wear a mask shall not apply under the following circumstances. While eating, drinking, or taking medication for brief periods. While communicating with a person who's hearing impaired when the ability to see the mouth is essential for communication. If on an aircraft, wearing of oxygen masks is needed because of loss of cabin pressure or other event affecting aircraft ventilation. Well, that's that's comforting. If the plane's going down, you can at least remove your face mask so you can put on the oxygen mask. Oh, I'm glad they thought of that. Um, if unconscious for reasons other than sleeping, incapacitated, unable to be awakened, or otherwise unable to remove the mask without assistance, or when necessary to temporarily remove the mask to verify one's identity, such as during Transportation Security Administration screening, or when asked to do so by the ticket or gate agent or any law enforcement official. Bad news, says Daisy Luther. The amount of time considered reasonable for the above exceptions is entirely up to the discretion of the officer. Her point here is vagueness is never a good thing in mandates because so much is open to interpretation. And that really depends upon the personal biases of the person who's interpreting. And again, I'm, I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, and I'm sorry. There are, there are perfectly kind and reasonable TSA personnel. And there are also some real horror stories out there. They have very, very broad discretion to ruin your day. Any disagreement, any slowness to respond to whatever they are demanding you do can result in some kind of, you know, quick summary punishment because they have that kind of discretion. This is really, really a bad thing to hand more power to such individuals. So who's exempt? Well, there are a few people exempt from being targeted by the mask police. Children under the age of two years, a person with a disability who cannot wear a mask or cannot safely wear a mask because of the disability as defined by the Americans with Disabilities Act, and a person for whom wearing a mask would create a risk to workplace health, safety, or job duty as determined by 
the relevant workplace safety guidelines or federal regulations. Yeah, your judgment? Not needed. We got these rules. I got this clipboard right here. She says, it appears that the folks who wrote these rules have never met two-year-olds. I could barely keep socks and winter hats on my kids, much less a mask on their faces. Oh, you also don't have to wear a mask in the following conveyances. So uh, the order exempts the following categories of conveyances, including persons on board such conveyances. So private conveyances operated solely for personal, non-commercial use, commercial motor vehicles or trucks, as these terms are defined in 49 CFR 390-5. Anyway, if the, if the driver is the sole occupant of the vehicle or truck, they don't have to mask up. And finally, conveyances operated or chartered by the U.S. military services, provided that such conveyance operators observe Department of Defense precautions to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 that are equivalent to the precautions in this order. That's a lot of bureaucratic blah, blah, blah. But this does follow Biden's new mask policies. And by the way, the Biden administration has wasted no time mandating masks. On his first day in office, President Biden signed an executive order requiring masks on all federal property, including national parks and inside federal buildings. He also issued a 100-day mask challenge for all Americans. Wow. We are, we are living in interesting times, to, to put it mildly. All right, let me skate out here onto the thin ice. I've got one final thought to share with you. This is a fascinating article about how our culture has reached the point where the president is now openly advocating for men to compete in women's sports and to use women's restrooms simply because they claim to be a woman. Kenneth Lafave has a fascinating take on how current attitudes towards transgenderism stem from feminism's inability to deal with Marilyn Monroe. No, no, no. You need to check this out. He says, had I told Democratic friends around the turn of the 21st century that in 2021, their party would insist that a biological man identifying as a woman should be treated as a woman in sports competitions, they would have laughed me under the table. Yet here's Joe Biden, their man in the White House, claiming that biological men have the right to compete against women as women and to use women's restroom facilities. He says, this is the sort of idiocy against which one cannot argue. Either one grasps the importance of chromosomes and genitalia in identifying males and females, or one is an idiot. To argue against the idiot is itself idiocracy, rather, because no one, is so, no one so irrational will ever listen to a rational argument. All we can try to do is understand how we got here. But he says, the route is not what one might think. The first path on this journey to biological blindness is culture's insistence on equality as sameness. Under that definition, it's expected that women would be given the same jobs as men, regardless of differences in physical strength. Applying this assumption of equal physical strength consistently, we're left with no room for complaint when physically superior men compete against physically inferior women, because merely pointing out the difference is forbidden. Men and women are physical equals, therefore competition between them is inherently equal, goes the classic feminist line. Unless the feminist rejects this claim, she must take the side of the transgendered in the case of athletics. But the case for men in women's sports is bigger than a claim to some equality. The assertion that men can identify as women if they so choose makes the very reality of man and woman a matter of choice, unrelated to biology. So if identity is a matter of choice, then the issue of biological differences is moot. That the biologically male women keep defeating the biologically female women is of no consequence. 
Some kinds of women are simply better at sports than other kinds of women. That's all. Although some have flirted with applying this issue of identity to areas beyond gender, the notion hasn't stuck to any of them. One hapless white woman attempted to identify as black but was promptly called out as a racial wannabe. That sort of thing the culture made clear was a no-no. You don't get to be a white black person, even though the chromosomal difference between blacks and whites is far less than between that of men and women. So how can men identify as women? He says the answer is found in one famous name, Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn is a symbol of objectified femininity, such as is often seen in Playboy magazine. The sexual revolution, so-called, did not result in the liberation of women, but in a new definition of women as sexual entities of a certain sort, where woman previously meant any biological female, with the ensuing range of possible attributes, personalities, and physical and emotional traits, the woman who emerged in the 1950s and 60s had only certain hyperbolized characteristics. She was built. She was seductive. She was a little on the mentally shallow side. In other words, she was easy prey for men on the, on the make. Now, this cliche of woman now seems ludicrous, as indeed it always was, but while feminists worked to offer a view of woman as man's physical and mental equal, they did nothing to offer a truly feminine alternative to Marilyn and Playboy. So a sexual woman remained an objectified woman. Now, he goes on to explain, you know, you know, that there was a progression that went from Playboy Bunny to Hippie Girl to 70s Swinger to 80s Party Girl, but nowhere along the line was there an effort to reaffirm the integrity of woman as a full sexual partner. And then we have the trans woman. Biology abandoned, he says, we arrive at the place where woman is any human with a particular attitude, namely a willingness to exhibit the cliches of objectified feminine sexuality and be called woman. Well, an object doesn't need biology. All that's required is the willingness to be such an object. And he says trans women are protected for the same reason pornography is popular. When woman again means something beyond a choice or an object, sanity will be restored to American sexuality. But he says for now, we live in a world of unreality where an entity is whatever we choose to name it. This is Kenneth Lafave. Got this off of uh, intellectualtakeout.org. Interesting take. You don't have to agree with it, but it's definitely a, it's a slant that I have not seen before. This is The Brian Hyde Show.